Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. May God add his blessing to this reading, this holy and sacred word. Amen and amen. When we come this morning to Psalm 4, we do so hopefully mindful that uh, there are three psalms that come before Psalm 4 and there are 146 that come afterwards. And uh, the fact that there are 146 that come afterwards is one of the reasons why I like to go to the psalms when we're in between things. I really, uh, it certainly would be possible to say, okay, we're going to do a series in the psalms and start with Psalm 1 and preach all the way to Psalm 150, and that would be a great thing, but it would take many years to get through the entire Psalter. Uh, For that reason, I like to go to the Psalms when we're in between uh, teaching through series or teaching through books. But another consideration here is when studying the Psalms, especially when approaching the Psalms in terms of preaching from the Psalms, Uh, I like to do a lot of work involved in trying to discern to the best of my ability why the Holy Spirit put this composition where he put it. In other words, why is Psalm 4, why why is it placed where it is? Why is this prayer that we have just read following the prayer that we read last time in Psalm 3? And uh, I think Psalm 1 and Psalms 1 and 2 are the easiest to Discern. Obviously, they're introductory. They introduce the entire Psalter. You know, it begins with blessed is the man. Uh, blessed is the woman. Uh, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the scorner's chair. But on God's law, he or she meditates day and night. Like a tree that's planted by the streams, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and all that they do prospers. But then it turns and it says, But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. That chaff being the, the uh, byproduct of harvesting the wheat crop. The wheat is what is valuable uh, once the chaff is, is, is taken from the, the wheat, from the stem. The wind easily just drives it away. Uh, And this is the metaphor that is used to describe the wicked. And here we see that there's really only two types of people being described. There are those who by faith are righteous. And I preface that. Those by faith who are righteous. uh, Those who have received Christ Jesus and therefore have had the righteousness of Christ credited to their account. There are those individuals we will call the people of God. And then there are the rest who are called the wicked. 
And this immediately confronts us with a certain tension because I think most of us would like there to be a third category. Uh, as unbelievers, we would like there to be a third category because we don't want to think... We understand we're not the righteous. We understand that as unbelievers. Now, hopefully we understand that as unbelievers or we're terribly self-deceived. Uh, but we don't want to consider ourselves the wicked either. We're certainly not that bad. Uh, but there are only two types. There is no third category. Jesus said, he who is not with me is what? It's against me. And that sets the tone for the entire Psalter, doesn't it? There are two types of people. There are the people of God. And then there are the wicked. And really, the Psalms, the Psalms are wonderfully instructed. What are the Psalms all about? The Psalms are about teaching the people of God the blessed of God, those who are happy in Christ, teaching them how to live covenant life uh, in Christ Jesus. How do we go through this world with all of its problems, with all of its travails? How do we go through the world watching the news with one eye and our Bibles with the other? How do we go through this world? The Psalms answer the questions for us over and over again. For there's not an emotion that any of us can experience that's not covered very well in the Psalter. Not a single one. It's wonderfully complete that way. Uh, so here we have our introduction in Psalm 1. Psalm 2, we find why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves in array against the Lord's anointed, saying, let's cast away his cords, let's cast away his bond. Uh, what, what is going on there? As the, the wicked try to uh, do away with Christ, and that really is the way we're born into this life, isn't it? We can think of Psalm 2 or Ephesians 2, which we've looked at so many times, where the Apostle Paul says that, you know, that he, he refers to uh, including himself as the sons of disobedience, who once walked in disobedience according to the counsel of this world, following the prince of the power of air. Uh, you remember that verse. We're born into this world rebels. We have fallen in Adam. We have fallen in him. And we're born in this world rebelling against Christ. Wanting to run the, our lives our way, not God's way. And here we see this on a corporate level. This rebellion in Psalm 2. setting uh, the, the world setting itself together against the Lord and against his anointed. Saying, let's do away with him. Uh, but we see in verse 6. Uh, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And of course, as we read the Psalter, it's important for us to understand that we can think of the anointed with a lowercase a, and we can think of the anointed with an uppercase a. The lowercase a often is David as king. And not always King David. Sometimes it's one of the other kings of Israel, but a king uh, nevertheless of Israel who is the anointed, we'll say the anointed with a lowercase a. Well, what do I mean by that? David is a type, he is a shadow of Christ, who is king with an uppercase A. Does that make sense? So, uh, the Lord says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And verse 7 makes it very clear that he's ultimately speaking of Christ Jesus. I will tell the decree, decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, the reader of the New Testament says, I recognize that language. Speaking of Jesus, who ultimately fulfills this. Um, now, last week when we came to Psalm 3, what did we find happening? Right, most immediately, uh, we find this contest between uh, the world and the Lord's anointed. Uh, in Psalm 3, uh, the immediate context has 
the world against the Lord's anointed with a lowercase a. Now what has happened? The title of Psalm 3 tells us that David's son Absalom has risen and is attempting to usurp the throne. And if you're familiar with uh, the story in Second Samuel, you know the you know the history there. If you Second Samuel fifteen through eighteen gives us uh, the sacred history there, where Absalom wanted to be king, and he fully recognized that the only way he could be king is if his father was destroyed. And we talked about that last the last time a couple of weeks ago. Now, when we come to Psalm four, uh, there are. Many, especially older commentators and old, uh, older Bible interpreters that believed that the historical context of Psalm 4 was the same as Psalm 3. Uh, most modern commentators don't agree with that, uh, saying that really it's not explicitly stated in Psalm 4 that, that the context is, you know, the historical situation between uh, David and uh, his son Absalom. I, I personally don't know what the historical context is here. I, I can't say that it is or that it isn't uh, the same as Psalm 3. But what I think is interesting and what is often pointed out is that many of the Psalms are that way. Uh, there really is no uh, uh, historical context made reference to. There is indeed a historical context. There is indeed some situation in history uh, that invoked this prayer. Uh, we just don't necessarily know what it is. Now, why am I taking you through this? Because this actually is, as Peter Craigie and others have said, uh, this is one of the geniuses of the psalm. The real genius of the psalm is sometimes we don't know what the context is. And that enables us to have a more broad application. And now, what do we know? If you look at verse 2, uh, we see that the, we see the problem. Uh, David, the author of the psalm, says, "Oh man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame?" Uh, what's going on here? Well, David's reputation is being smeared. His reputation is being smeared. Undoubtedly, it's being done by slander and false accusation. So, where in Psalm three, David's life was clearly in physical danger. Uh, very clearly in physical danger. In Psalm, in Psalm 4, his life isn't necessarily in danger, at least right now. Uh, but it very well could be, because if you look at the phrase, O men, many of your Bibles may have a footnote there. In the ESV, there's a footnote, and if you follow it down to the margin, it says, O men of rank. Uh, what's going on here is the translators of the ESV is pointing your attention to the fact that in the Hebrew, in the original language, uh, these are not just common uh, garden variety people like ourselves who are slandering uh, King David. Uh, these are people who are in uh, various positions in life, probably in government. These are people of high influence. These are people who could uh, indeed really, really stand to smear David's reputation. Uh, these are not... Uh, uh, the sounds of the drunkards at the gates, if you will, uh, who other psalms uh, teach us that the drunkards were at the gates and they, they slandered the king. Uh, uh, certainly you have that going on in every nation. But no, this, these are people in prominent positions uh, who are doing this and they're smearing uh, David. Um, now, what, what are we to do with this? 
Well, one of the reasons for choosing Matthew 26 this morning and the reading that we looked at in Matthew 26, namely Jesus before Caiaphas. When Jesus went before Caiaphas, what was happening to his reputation in that kangaroo court? What was taking place? They were accusing him of all kinds of things. Many came forward and brought false accusations, didn't they? And what did Jesus do? Did he stand up and did he lawyer up? Did he stand up and did he, uh, did he, uh, did he announce and, and defend himself in that, in that case? No, the text told us that he was completely silent, didn't it? Why? Jesus had confidence. He had confidence. So we see ultimately, and as we begin to look at this psalm, we're going to see how this ultimately points to Jesus. And as we see how it points to Jesus, we're going to see how it can point to us. If we're, if we're walking with Christ Jesus, guess what? There's going to come a day where somebody is going to be trying to smear your reputation. And some of you who have walked with Jesus for a while have already experienced the pain of false accusations. Where people stand up and they say things. And some of them are in prominent positions, maybe in the workplace or maybe elsewhere in the family. And they say things about you that just are not true. So how do we, as the people of God, walk in faith when this is taking place? And that's really the, the application and the subject that I want to take up from this point forward. When people are doing this to us, what do we do? Well, let's start by looking at what David has done. If you look at verse 1, notice he does something immediately that's counterintuitive to us. He calls on the Lord and he says, answer me when I, when I call. David immediately goes to prayer. And I'm suggesting that that's counterintuitive to us. Why? Because I think when we find ourselves being falsely accused and slandered, we have a tendency to go to each other first and not to God. We have a tendency to get on the phone with our best friend and tell them what's going on so that we have somebody to listen to. And that's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not condemning that. But it's, I think where it goes wrong is it's oftentimes the first thing that we do, isn't it? That's not what David does. David's going to the Lord. Answer me when I call. And notice his address. His address of God is very interesting here. Uh, oh God of my righteousness. Oh God of my righteousness. I can remember many years ago reading this psalm and being confused by that. Thinking, okay, David, uh, okay, how does the psalmist, what is he saying here? I can remember pondering over that. And then I remember reaching a period of time where I think, oh, I think I got this. Okay, David saved by faith. The Old Testament say, saints are saved by faith. Um, righteousness through faith. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that's what David's up to. He's calling, oh God, my righteousness. You know, that's what David's up to. And that's what I thought was being meant here. And this is a case where we got the right doctrine. There's nothing, that, that, that's 100% true. It's one of those cases where you've got the right doctrine, but you've got the wrong text. Sometimes uh, uh, as preachers, we can open up the Word of God and we can begin preaching and we can preach right and sound doctrine, but it's not necessarily what's being taught in the particular text that we've chosen. Right doctrine, wrong text. Uh, what is going on here? Well, What's the context? David is being smeared. So he goes to God. 
the God who can see everything that's taken place. David knows these things aren't true. The slanderous remarks aren't true. The false accusations simply aren't true. And he knows that God knows this. So he calls on him as his God of righteousness. It's not that David is coming to God uh, claiming to be without sin. We're going to see that's not the case here in just a couple minutes. He's looking at God. You see everything that's going on. You see I haven't done these things. You see that these the slanderous remarks are not true. There's nothing true about them. And then he moves on in the next line. He says, you've given me relief when I was in distress. This is an important thing here. And we're going to find this as we go through the Psalter over and over and over again, where the psalmist, in need of mercy for the current situation, looks in the past when he has received mercy in past situations. That's a principle. Donald brought it up last week, mentioning Ebenezer, the word Ebenezer. Sometimes in our songs we sing, my Ebenezer, and we scratch our heads and say, well, my goodness, what's up with that? Are we talking about Uncle Ebenezer? Who are we talking about here? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, there's a story where Israel's in conflict with the Philistines and they're scared out of their boats. And Samuel prays for them and says, listen, don't be, don't be afraid. The Lord's going to give you victory today. March up, be strong. And that's what they do. And they're given, they're given victory. And Samuel does something that's very wise. He puts up this stone uh, which is called a stone of help, which is what Ebenezer means, a stone of help. He puts this stone up as a monument that will commemorate the mercy that has been received this day so that uh, later down the road, when these mercies are forgotten, they, this stone can be looked upon and those mercies can be remembered. For what purpose? To strengthen us when we need mercy in the future. And future generations can look back and say, wow, we've received such mercy here. Certainly we'll receive mercy here. Now some of us, you know, we could stop right here and make application because what we need to learn to do is we need to learn to set up these stones in our own life as we receive mercy. You know, take an inventory sometime this afternoon and think about in your past how many times God has come to your side and He's assisted you. You know, for Tammy and I, uh, you know, I can, I can share some of them with you. I mean, many of them have been financial. There's been times where, you know, uh, we've needed financial help and it's come really out of the sky. It's come right from the, the Lord himself and we know that. Now, what does that do for us? Well, in future times when we go through uh, financial difficulties, if we should have to go through more of them, we may, I don't know, but if we do, uh, we, can, we can look back in past mercies. We can see how God has he's come through for us in the past. God doesn't change. He'll come through for us in the future. But you see, you want to you 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 inventory these things and set up these stones of help in your mind. Set up these Ebenezers. That's what David is doing. He says, listen, you've given me relief uh, when I was in distress. Notice the past tense of this. Undoubtedly, David is thinking of concrete situations that he has been delivered from by the Lord. And it strengthens him. It strengthens him for the, for the present skirmish that he's in right now. And then he says, be gracious to me. And this is how we know. David is not, David is not uh, thinking that he is without sin. He's not the, like the Pharisee in Luke that says, Oh, Lord, I thank you that you haven't made me like that other guy. You know. Oh, no, I tithe everything I get. and I, You know, I'm in church every Sunday and I'm doing all this and all that. No, that's not David at all. David says, Lord, be gracious to me. 
Another reasonable translation of that phrase would be, Lord, give me mercy. Now, who needs mercy? The guilty are those who need mercy. David recognizes he's a sinner before the Lord. Give mercy to me and hear my prayer. And now, at some point in his prayer, his mind wanders from the Lord, so to speak, to his enemies. Now, I don't know if David is praying in public, out loud, where his enemies are present and they can hear him. I'm inclined to believe that's not the case. I'm inclined to believe that David is praying alone with God, uh, perhaps silently, maybe, maybe, maybe out loud, uh, but that his enemies are far away from him, that they cannot, in terms of being able to hear him, they cannot hear him. Uh, I don't know what the case is, but here's what we do know. We do know that David's mind and heart uh, switches gears here in verse 2. In terms of his mind and his heart, he's now thinking about his enemies. And he's saying, listen, how long? You know, listen, fellas, how long are you going to do this? You know, when is enough enough? In essence, is what he's saying here. You know, how long are you going to love these vain words and seek after lies? Now, all of this becomes a little clearer when we look at verse 3. Notice what David says here. He says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He's still in his mind, at least, at the very least, addressing his enemies here. And what is he appealing to? He's appealing to his election. He's appealing to the doctrine of election. How? Know that the Lord has what? He has set apart the godly for himself. And this is a doctrine that's hated by many outside of the church, and we can understand why for many reasons. But it's a doctrine that's also hated in the church. That's a little less easy to understand. David is appealing to the fact that God has set him apart. Who set him apart? God set him apart. He set him apart in one sense. He has set him apart as being, to be king of Israel. Who installed David as king of Israel? It was God who did that. He was chosen by God for that. But uh, more broadly here, he says that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. That would be all who call on the name of the Lord. This morning, if you're calling on the name of the Lord, listen, the Lord has set you apart. Out of eternity's past, he has set you apart. For who? For himself. What a glorious thing. Now what does this do for David? In his mind. Listen everybody. I didn't do the stuff you're saying that I did. I'm not like you're describing me. The Lord knows it. And furthermore, he has set me apart for himself. How long are you going to go after this stuff that's never going to work? You know, listen, people may believe this stuff. They may believe this stuff for the next six weeks. They may believe this stuff for the next six years. They may go to their graves believing this stuff. But someday in the end, in the not so distant future, I'm going to be vindicated of this because the Lord has set me apart for himself. 
He has set me apart from himself. And something, listen, David's circumstances don't change, but David changes. David changes. And how do we know he changes? Look at the last line of verse 3. He says, the Lord hears when I call him. He starts out by asking the Lord to hear him. And then he repeats it again in verse 1. Hear me when I call. The end of verse 1. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. But something takes place in David as he considers his doctrine of election. The fact that he's been chosen in Christ. That he has been chosen. What takes place now is confidence. If we want to put Psalm 4 in a bin, if we want to categorize it, it's wise for us to do so. This is a psalm of confidence. Here we've got confidence. Oh, no, 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 no. Unless you guys can slander me all you want, but the Lord hears me when I call. He has set me apart for himself. You guys need to watch what you're doing here. This is not wise. Look at the rest. Be angry and do not sin is the way our ESV translation goes. There's a footnote there. It says it be agitated if you look at the margin. But some of your translations may use the word tremble. If you're looking at a translation that says tremble, raise your hand. Maybe some of you are. I don't know. I think the King James translation uses stand in awe, I think it says. Stand in awe. This can be translated in a number of different ways. If we look at it as angry, be angry and do not sin, then perhaps what David is saying here is he's saying, listen, you guys, are, you guys obviously have some beef with me, uh, but you, the very least of what you need to do is you need to keep your mouth shut about it. That would be the best thing you could do is just keep your mouth shut. Be angry and do not sin by continuing to run your mouth the way you are. The Lord has set the godly for himself. Uh, if we take it to be tremble, uh, then we could say, listen, uh, it could be like Peter at Pentecost when he's preaching. And uh, he, con- you know, he convinces many in the crowds that this uh, Jesus whom you crucified, the Lord has made both Lord and Christ. And they tremble at the sound of that. And they cry out, what, what do I need to do? What must I do? Uh, repent and be baptized, all of you. Uh, that could be what's going on there. Uh, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. I, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that we should think of it as trembling. Uh, even though the Apostle Paul uses this verse in Ephesians 4. Some of you will recognize in Ephesians 4.26, Paul uses this. He's using the Greek translation of it when he, translate, when he, when he uh, recalls it in Ephesians 4. And I'm not going to go into that too much this morning because... It'll just be too much for one morning. But uh, I think, nevertheless, we should think of this as trembling. Tremble. I think this this totally changes our, our attitude here. When people do nasty stuff to us, we have a tendency to want to retaliate, don't we? But upon reflection, upon the kind of reflection that David is reflecting on here, things change. Think about what they're doing. Listen, what, you're not really doing this against me here. You're doing this against the Lord. You guys ought to be trembling in your boots here. Is what you really should be doing. And I think that fits better because verse 5, offer right sacrifices. Here's the gospel. You know, the gospel is in the Old Testament. Everywhere. And here is the gospel. Offer right sacrifices. What, were the, what was the sacrificial system all about? It pointed to Jesus. You know, in a few minutes when we come to the table here, what is this all about? It points to what Jesus has come and done, hasn't it? 
But Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system, doesn't he? All of those animal sacrifices all pointed to Jesus. Now, it was possible, and actually, unfortunately, it was common for people just to go through the motions. Go to the temple. Go through the motions, you know? Just like it's possible today and actually quite common. Go to church. Sit up. You know, stand up, sit down. Stand up, sit down. Sing, uh, don't sing. Pray, uh, don't pray. Uh, listen and uh, leave. And it's, it's very common for people to be, to be present, but not present. To, to just be going through the motions. And this is everywhere, everywhere in the prophets, condemned by God. Now, one verse that comes to mind is the, Isaiah saying, listen, you honor me. God says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. But when David says to these characters, offer right sacrifices... He's saying, listen, offer these sacrifices the way you're supposed to offer these sacrifices, which means you do so from your heart, which means you understand that this animal is going in your place and that the Lord is receiving this animal in your place and that it points to the Messiah who will come. Now, they don't understand all the details, but what is clear enough is that you're being redeemed from your sins. That is clear enough. And when the heart attaches itself to that, then the sacrifices are offered rightly. Just like this morning when our hearts are attached to the psalms that we sing and our hearts are attached to the word that we preach and proclaim and our hearts are attached to the prayers that we, that we pray and our heart is attached to the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, well then we're offering right sacrifices to the God. Uh, in essence, it seems that he's calling these guys to repentance, isn't he? Repent. You know, we're going to be friends after you do that. We'll be more than friends. We're going to be brothers. Have you ever had the experience of someone who's an enemy repent and come to Christ and now you're very close to them? Have you ever had that experience? I hope that someday you will. I have had that experience. I'm thinking of one individual in mind right now that's so close to me who once was really not part of my fan club at all. They did not like but now there's this wonderful kinship and friendship that exists. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. If we look at verse 6, David goes on to say, there are many who say, who will show us some good. And, and here David's attention turns really from his enemies, so to speak, to really those who doubt. You know, if you look at that verse, this, this is the language of, of doubting. You know, there are many who say, who will show us some good. You know, we might put two categories here. There's the unbelieving, doubting, and then there's the believing, doubting, if you will. You know, the unbelieving, doubting. As unbelievers, we run to this, and if we have a little bit of uh, uh, smarts to us, we'll run to this thing over here and we'll say, okay, this really doesn't fulfill. And then we'll run over here and we say, well, this really isn't answering my troubles. And then we run to here. And after a while, we begin to say, listen, all vanity of vanity, everything is vanity. I mean, some of our culture doesn't really get that far. They, they're not awake enough to see that it's vanity, but there are many in our culture who do see the vanity of this. And family, what do they say? Who's going to show us some good? There's nothing good. There's nothing, you know. You'll, you'll run into people like that. That's one category, but there's another category. This category of us whenever we have doubts. Do you ever have doubts? Do doubts ever plague you? And when... You know, I hope everybody's going, yeah, I mean, I, uh, we have doubts from time to time. What do we do when we doubt? 
We put on the helmet of salvation. If the helmet was on, we wouldn't be doubting, you know. We're, our helmet's off. What does David do? Well, he, he puts on the helmet of salvation and he takes up the sword of the Spirit, if you recall the teaching in Ephesians 6. He says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. This is a reference to that, what we often call the doxology, you know, the blessing of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. You know, David's not quoting that verse for verse, but he's paraphrasing it. He's heard it many times at the end of worship services. And he says, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to fight these doubts with this. The Lord is going to bless me. He is going to keep me. He is going to make my, His face shine upon me. That's what He promises to do. He's wielding the sword of the Spirit to His own heart, isn't He? He's putting on the helmet of salvation. He's thinking through these doubts. And what happens? Confidence. 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 Look at verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Here's this smeared person, slandered person by these powerful people full of joy. There is no inference anywhere in this psalm that his situation has changed. They're still smearing. They're still carrying out their lives. But his heart is full of joy and it's full of confidence. Same thing happened to Jesus, didn't it? And the same thing will and has in some cases happened to us, hasn't it? How do we deal with it? Well, we see Psalm 4. It concludes in verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. <laughs> title I chose for this sermon, I don't know if it's a good title or not, but I kind of like it, or I wouldn't have chosen it. But it's, you know, sleeping while you're being smeared. You know, I try to choose titles that somebody on the internet might see and think, well, that, maybe someone's being smeared. And when you're being smeared, when does that have a tendency to really bother you? It's when you're laying down trying to sleep. And that's when your mind wanders all over the place. Everywhere. The thought of such and such believing I did that. And it keeps you up. The thought of such and such thinking I did that. The thought of such and such thinking that I'm that kind of person. Keeping you up. How do we sleep when that's happening? Psalm 4 answers. In peace, I'm going to both lie down and I'm going to sleep. Why? Because the Lord has got my six. The Lord has got my back. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great psalm that teaches us how to walk in covenant faithfulness with you while we're being smeared. Father, we have such great examples. We have King David who is leading us, but we have Christ Jesus who truly fulfills this psalm, who endured slander that, and still continues to endure slander for his name is slandered more than anyone's name is. All over the place, all over this valley, his name is being smeared as common cuss words even as we pray. 
And, oh, Father, as we look to Jesus and we see how he endured these things, how he endured his reputation being smeared as, how, as David, it gives, us great, it gives us great comfort, it gives us great strength, it gives us great hope that we might, too, both lie down and sleep as we are being smeared. So, Father, we pray that you would be pleased to uh, paint these words upon our heart in such a way that they will be easily recalled when that hour comes. And should we find ourselves in that hour now that these words may minister to us greatly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.